If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5 this morning, just a few verses, verses 13 through 16, but verses that I think have uh, a lot of significance as we seek to, uh, to live as God's children in the midst of this world. No one, or maybe should I say very few of us, uh, like to be thought of as weird or strange or out of touch, uh, not hip. Um, no one, or probably very few of us, want to be thought of as hateful, as judgmental, as unloving. And I think we're living in a world that is increasingly graceless um, as we deal with one another. Um, and just reading this week, uh, MIT invited a professor in to speak, and uh, they uninvited the professor because that professor that was coming in to speak had the audacity to say that tenure should be connected with merit instead of kind of ideology, and they were all up in arms about, no, that's totally wrong. It should be the ideology that they're presenting that's most important, not really what work they've done in their academic field. I also was reading this week that someone said when a group advertised that they were going to have fried chicken, maybe even Kentucky fried chicken, that that was a triggering event for them because of some issue in their past and they thought it was inappropriate to advertise fried chicken with something because that was a triggering event because that is somehow offensive to me. And as we're living in this culture, and I'm not on social media, but I'm sure there's huge fear in posting anything on social media. If people are offended by fried chicken, what in the world, if I say something now, am I going to be totally canceled because I mentioned Burger King or something like that? Because that triggers an event somewhere. And I think this is especially challenging for followers of Jesus. Scripture calls us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we hear that kind of as first, middle, and last name. That's not really what it is. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord is that term for master. You are my master. I am your servant. Jesus, that Yahweh saves, this Jesus that has come to take away the sins of the world, and Christ, we've been talking about this, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah, he's the king. So when we believe, we believe in the master, Jesus, the ultimate king. That's what we're declaring our allegiance to as we walk through this world and as we walk through this world, hopefully in obedience to this king, the values of the world are often going to be very different than the values of our king. Jesus was before Pilate and said, are you a king? And he says, in one sense, yes, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. I'm a king, that is true, but my kingdom is, is very different than what you think about. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Bible Project, but I really like Tim Mackey. And he gave an illustration that I really liked in terms of values that we have in the kingdom and values that the world have. And he says, look at it as if, you know, you have learned to drive in a country that drives in the right way, with, on the right side of the road, right? And then there are certain kingdoms in the world, the United Kingdom, for example, where they drive on the left side of the road. And he said, imagine you are in one of those kingdoms, 
and you meet together and you are all about the values of driving on the right side of the road. I remember when I got my license in uh, Illinois, I had this little booklet that was the rules of the road. This is how we drive. And that was a really important booklet for me from about 15 and a half to 16 till my very birthday. I was in the DMV getting my license, right? And so I learned all these rules. But Mackie says, imagine then you learn all those rules and then you go out into a world where they're driving on the opposite side of the road. And you seek to live those rules out in a kingdom that does not have the same rules. What is going to happen there? There's going to be lots of collisions, right? And I think that's what we see often in our culture. And I think Jesus recognized this fact as well. And we're looking at this passage of scripture that's called the Sermon on the Mount or the message of the kingdom. And Jesus is is bringing that message of the kingdom. And last week we saw that these values, these characteristics of being in the kingdom are radically different than the characteristics that the world values. And at the end of that, he, he gave this one characteristic that is like, it's like, okay, you know, blessed are you when you're persecuted. And you're looking at that and like, oh, that's, that's crazy, right? Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus, at the end of these Beatitudes, where he's saying, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who recognize your need for God. Blessed are you who mourn over your own sin and how sin impacts this entire world. And and blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for living in the right way in the midst of this broken world. But at the end of that, he recognizes, man, if you actually begin to live this out in the world, it's going to create some difficulty. It's going to create some persecution. And I think Jesus right away knew that his disciples, his followers, were going to face two primarily strong temptations as we seek to live out this kingdom in the midst of a world that drives, I think, on the wrong side of God's street. And I think the first temptation is to live by the rules of the road of this world. To say, you know, Jesus, these are wonderful ideals that you have, but living in that way in this world, it's just going to cause too much difficulty. There are going to be too many collisions. And I I don't like conflict. I don't like persecution. I don't want any of that. And I think Jesus, in this next section, prepares his disciples to face down these two temptations. So let's read this short passage, starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth, But if salt has lost its taste, literally become foolish, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is a reading of God's word. 
So he deals with this salt metaphor right away. And I was talking to Fred Heilman and Tim Ryap as a chemist as well. As far as I know, NaCl, sodium chloride, is a very stable element. Salt cannot become unsalty. But we need to recognize that when these people gathered salt, they gathered it probably from the Dead Sea and those areas, and it included other minerals and other substances in it. And at this stage of life, basically, there was no frigid air that people opened and put their meat in. So how would they preserve their fish and their meat? They would do it with salt, right? Um, I'm reading a little book. It's called Salt, A World History, a thriller. You guys may want to pick this up. You can blame Clay Jones if he's around. There's another book called Cod that's equally scintillating. But uh, this is what uh, the bio or the little on the back is, says here, until about 100 years ago when modern geology revealed its prevalence, salt was one of the world's most sought-after commodities, a substance so valuable it served as currency. Salt has influenced the establishment of trade routes and cities, provoked and financed wars, secured empires, and inspired revolutions. Salt, just little salt. And we don't recognize the importance of salt so much in our culture anymore because it's so available and we primarily use that for flavoring, which was used in that time, but the primary use of salt was to prevent decay and putrefaction of meat and fish. And there was a possibility after using this salt for a while that the moisture would leach the sodium chloride out of it and you'd be left with a substance that was still called salt but it had lost its saltiness. It no longer preserved what it was supposed to preserve. And so if you're a sailor, you're out in the sea and you open up the thing that's supposed to contain salted meats and you look at it and it's like all nasty and moldy and you're like, ah, that salt had lost its saltiness. It's not useful for anything. And so I think what Jesus is getting at here, he says, you are the salt of the world, believers disciples. He doesn't say become salt. He says, this is what you are. This is the quality that you're to have on the world. You're to impact the world and bring a sense of prevention of decay and flavoring to the world. It's supposed to be a positive thing and influence on society. But as we interact with society, there's often a pushback that we get, right? There's persecution that comes. And so what does it mean for us to lose our saltiness? I think one of the ways that can happen is if we just kind of try to remake Jesus and rethink the gospel in a way that's more palatable to our culture. To give Jesus a makeover so he fits in with what we think and what we know in our day and age right now. And again, you look at culture in America, and to me it's very polarized. So I see one of the ways that people that are seeking to follow Jesus lose their saltiness is they, they kind of model a Jesus that's kind of a pop culture Jesus, right? And it's amazing. All the things that Jesus was really into, we're really into today. And we'll talk a lot about those things that, that we like about Jesus, that passion for justice, his care for the poor, and all those things are, are really good things. But when Jesus 
talks about the fact that ultimately we'll stand before the God of this universe and give an account for ourselves and there will be judgments. Like, no, I'm not, that's not, you know, we understand a little bit more now about what God is like, so we don't want that. Or Jesus, Jesus' teaching about human sexuality, it's like, nah, we're really not into that in our culture today. If it's consensual, it's okay, so that's where we're going to go in our world today, and Jesus is a little bit outdated. He doesn't really understand a lot of that stuff. We're much more enlightened in our world today. Jesus actually being the unique way of salvation, that's pretty offensive to our world as well, so we know a lot more today, and kind of everybody's okay, God's okay with, with everybody. And so we will remake Jesus in a way that amazingly, everything that he stands for lines up perfectly with what I believe about life today. Isn't that astounding and amazing, right? And so we make Jesus more palatable by diluting the salt by just not quite being as salty as God has called us to be. There's a really huge church in Texas, and the lead pastor there says that he doesn't preach about sin, he doesn't preach about the blood of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't preach about the cross, because that's all way too negative. And that doesn't lead to your most fantastic life at this particular moment by talking about those kind of things. And that church is massive. It's mass. People come in and say, I love this place, man. Paul warned Timothy, says, as things go on, there are going to be people that gather to themselves teachers that teach exactly what their itching ears want to hear. So if you come to Jesus and you can read about Jesus and look at Jesus' life and there's nothing in Jesus that makes you kind of push back, I can't believe he's, he's messing with my business in that area then maybe the Jesus you're looking at is not really the Jesus of Scripture. So we see kind of that tendency in the church. And that tends to happen more on the left, but that's not the exclusive domain of the left to have this pop culture Jesus. There's also this trend, tendency that I see today to have a very political Jesus. There are churches now that are springing up in this country that are called patriot churches that are churches that are aligned specifically with a political ideology and agenda. And I was looking at one of the websites. It says, for Christians who love Jesus and love the United States of America. How could you not be part of that church, right? And this isn't patriotism. This is Christian nationalism. This is associating Jesus with a particular political party and ideology and agenda. And we probably all have strong feelings of which political party is important, right? But I want to let you know, Jesus is not a donkey. And he's not an elephant. He is the Lion of Judah. And he is the Lamb of God that bows to no political ideology his kingdom isn't of this world, and he has stuff to say in criticism, I think, of both political parties. And we need to be really careful when we identify one and only one as the party of Jesus. And in those churches, there's a tendency to cut out of Scripture Jesus teaching about loving the alien and the stranger and even the enemy. To cut out Jesus' teaching about the church being a place of racial equality where every wall is brought down. Where Jesus talks much about caring for the poor. 
And again, I know probably we all have strong feelings about this, but I think we need to go back a step. And there's certain people that have a feeling that, you know what, government is there to provide help for people. And that's their underlying ideology. And I think a lot of that comes from your background. And then there's other people that say, you know what, the purpose of government is to get out of the way so people can help themselves. And I'll see somebody saying, yeah, for the first one, and yeah, for the second one. But to recognize, okay, probably neither one of those is perfect in every way. But am I going to separate from someone who names the name of Jesus Christ and seeks to follow Jesus Christ because they don't agree with my political ideology, even though they agree with everything in terms of orthodox Christianity, and to say, you're not a follower of Jesus because you don't value this or that. To me, that is adding and adulterating the salt with something else. And again, even saying, I can see, you know, I'm going to get emails and I can't believe you said that. The reality is that Jesus, as I've said before, is an equal opportunity offender. That there is no political party or ideology that is perfect. And I think when we begin to merge Jesus and a particular political ideology, then there's real problems there. Because then people will identify Jesus with that particular ideology and a lot of what is negative in that ideology will come with Jesus as well. Instead of Jesus standing over that and us standing over that as people, and I'm saying get involved, do things, I believe life is sacred and we should push for life and advocate for life, but also to recognize that there are other issues that God is passionate about. So are we salty Christians? Or has our salt been adulterated with something else? Or has our salt been watered down? Because we know, you know what, we can grow our church if we plant a rainbow flag out front. Or if we plant a Trump 2024 flag out front. But to me, neither one of those churches is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously and what he says in this message about being part of the kingdom. And again, I think part of the problem is social media here. And again, that little thing that we carry around with us, you know, we look for certain news, and once we look for one news story, the algorithms in there know, okay, I'm going to keep feeding you all those stories that agree with what you just, and they know that, you know, when we get ticked off, we click more. So what is that? They're, okay, tick us off so we're clicking more so that they monetize my time more and more. And that happens on both sides. So we're living in a world where like political ideology is now dividing the church and it should not do that. And I think sometimes we need to put that stupid thing down and sit down with someone that is different from us and have a conversation. How many conversations on social media, those of you who are on it, are gentle and respectful and really deal with the substance of issues? It's really hard to have those, that's why I'm not on social media because I will probably be unliked, canceled immediately. But the reality is this stuff is dividing and tearing apart the church of Jesus Christ and it shouldn't. We serve a higher king. My citizenship is not in this country. I love this country. I'm so privileged to be part of this country. But you know what? This country's not God. 
God is God and Jesus is God and our call is to follow him and to be able to point out on both sides, hey, I don't think that's right. Hey, I don't think that's right. And not to so align our Jesus with a particular political ideology that we end up diluting and watering down the gospel and who Jesus is. So disciples, it says you are salt. How salty are you? Have you let other things into your life that have become more prominent or do you have a tendency, just, I'm just going to fly below the radar here because there's persecution out there. I'm just going to go with the flow because it's a whole lot easier to go with the flow. Jesus' followers are meant to be distinct and to impact the world in a positive manner. And I think what Jesus is saying here is when we lose our distinctiveness, we're no help for the world. We're just going to get thrown out in the street. That was the garbage dump. Just throw it out in the street. This substance has no use anymore. We're called to live with integrity and the values of the kingdom in the midst of this world. To be people that are different, even when facing those that we very much disagree with. Can we do that with gentleness and respect? I see nowhere in any of the Gospels where Jesus is screaming at somebody. And when I read certain stuff on social media and look at certain news feeds, I see a whole lot of screaming and hatred going on. And it's like, can we have a discourse with somebody? And I recognize sometimes you are going to be persecuted even if you just say no thank you. Some of you are in the military, right? And I imagine pilots and pilots in training like to do certain things. And hey, we're going to go down to McGuire's, we're going to tie one on, and then later on we're going to go over to Sammy's. You want to join us? Uh, no thank you. You think you're better than than us? You judging me by doing this? The reality is just by standing for the truth sometimes we're going to get pushed back and hassled. But I really want us as believers to take that in a way that's gentle and respectful and not to push back and not to get in somebody's face. I know, I've been there. I've been in a workplace where I'm the only Christian and, you know, there's certain people that you know, they just want to get a rise out of you. They just want to push your button. How are you going to respond? Can we respond with graciousness and kindness and love? And notice what Jesus says here. You're the salt of the earth. The whole thing. He's talking to some Jewish people basically laborers, and he said, you are the salt of the entire earth. It's like, what in the world? That's an amazing statement. You are here to provide prevention of decay and positive impact and savor to this entire world. That's my calling. That's what you are. So don't let your salt become unsalty. How do we keep it salty? To me, by going back and back and back and back again to Jesus Christ. To learning to abide in him. Learning to imbibe his values and say, this is the kind of person that I am called to be as a citizen of his kingdom and that's going to look very different than the citizens of this world. And sometimes that's going to involve pushback. 
But do not believers begin to fight the battles of this world with the weapons of this world. You're screaming at me, I'm gonna scream at you even louder. You're cutting me down, I'm gonna cut you down even more. He says, be salty, but do that in a way that reflects Jesus Christ. In Colossians 4, 6, he says, let your conversation always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Provide purity in that conversation. Provide savor in those conversations. But let them be gracious. Because one time in your life, probably, if you, especially if you came to Christ later, you were a knucklehead. You had all sorts of crazy ideas. And hopefully, when people interacted with you that were believers, they just weren't screaming at you and telling you how awful you were and how screwed up in your politics you were and your ethics and your sexuality and all that kind of stuff but came to you with grace and said, you know what, this is what I've learned and this is what Jesus has done in my life and transformed me and let me tell you what he can do in your life as well. So, where do we do this? Where we are, right? Where we are. In our workplace, how many of you are in like the medical field out there today? Nobody? Yeah, I know there's some of you in the medical field. Students, university professors, people that have care responsibilities over children, military. God has called you into all of those places. That's where you're to be salt. To me, part of this is the recognition that as believers, we're called to be engaged in this world. Salt does nothing if it's not in connection with those things that are in the world. And that leads, I think, to the second analogy that Jesus gives here. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So this is the second temptation. If the first temptation is to follow the rules of the road of the world, to adopt your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus based on the culture and to modify that based on the culture. The second temptation is to give up driving altogether, to head out into the hinterlands and to buy a mule and just disconnect from driving altogether. And I think that's what this metaphor of you're the light of the world is talking about here. Here it's not a temptation to water down the exclusivity of the gospel or the claims of Jesus Christ, but it's a temptation to avoid persecution by just removing ourselves and not having any contact with anybody in the world. To hide my light under a bushel. And again, Jesus says here, you are the light of the world. And I've heard some people say, well, that's not really accurate because in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But to me, you need to read the next chapter in John. John 9, Jesus, after talking with the blind man that he heals, remember the conversation, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus says, neither, it's so that God's glory may be shown. And he says, while I am on this earth, I am the light of the world. Interesting. After he leaves, then who's the light of the world? We are his body, right? And I think we are more than just, you know, I've heard be the moon, reflect the sun. I like that in one sense. But the reality for believers, if we have a relationship with God, 
that the very God of this universe dwells in us by his spirit, the spirit of Christ. So we all individually are the lights of Christ in this world. Collectively together, I think that's the analogy, a city on a a hill, you cannot not see that, right? But as individuals, I think we're, we're often tempted. It's like, man, it's just too hard to live in this world. So I'm just gonna retreat to my little Christian group. And I'm only gonna listen to Christian music and eat Christian food and sit on Christian chairs and live in a Christian house and drive a Christian car and make sure I never buy anything that's ever been touched by a non-Christian. It's like, okay, try to live that way. It's A, impossible, and B, that's not what God is calling us to, right? Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to let our light shine so that people will see our good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. You read a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, I think this is a contradiction here, Jesus. Because later on, you tell the Pharisees not to do their prayer and their fasting and their giving to be seen by men. But here you're saying, this means, see, I told you there's tons of contradictions in the Bible. To me, you need to look at this in terms of the motivation. Why were the Pharisees and the religious leaders doing their things? To receive praise and admiration from men. So what was their motive in doing their good deeds? It's all about me. Look how holy, look how righteous, look how good I am. Here, what does Jesus say the purpose of these good works are? To give glory to your Father in heaven. So the key is our motivation and why we are doing the things that we are doing as believers. In Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6, God's people are called to be a light for the nations. We are called to bring this light into the world, into all of the world. Again, Jesus, this, this massive kind of scope of this, you are the light of the world, literally of the cosmos. So, What are you supposed to do with that? What does he equate light with here? Good deeds. Things that you do, good works that allow people to give glory to the Father in heaven. I think we live in a world today that's pretty cynical and is very tired of Christian words. And they've heard enough Christian words that are unmatched by Christian deeds or when they've seen, oh, this guy's been spouting all these Christian words and then we see this massive fall and it's all over the news and it's like, don't don't talk to me about this stuff anymore. And I think in one sense there's some correctness in that and I think Jesus speaks to that here What is going to enable people to give glory to God? It's seeing the good works of his people living as light in this world. And to me, it's amazing. You look at history and you see how the people of God have had a positive impact on this world in terms of starting hospitals and orphanages, education, literacy, all these things oftentimes were started by believers doing their good works in the midst of this world, providing change in a positive way so that people can look at that and not say, whoa, look at how great that person is, but that person say, you know, why in the world are you doing what you're doing right now? 
because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. Julian, the last pagan emperor of, of Rome, he recognized that uh, Christians showing compassion and care was kind of really upsetting, especially because a lot of pagans were becoming Christians. And this is what he says, writing to a pagan priest. He says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priest, talking about the pagan priest, I think the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, these impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And then Julian goes on to encourage the pagan priests to follow the Christians' practice of caring for the poor so that they could increase in number. So here we have a pagan emperor saying, you know what, one of the reasons that this Christianity is taken off is because these Christians are caring so much, they even care for our poor. Early on in the church when there were epidemics that hit a town, it was primarily the Christians that hung around where all the wealthy people headed out to the country and those that could leave, even the physicians and those that stayed behind to care and oftentimes die in the midst of that were believers. Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist, I don't think he's a Christian, wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity, and he attributed in a sociological way much of the rise of the church to how the Christians cared for those that were around them that did not yet know Jesus Christ. And I think we live in a day and age where we need to let our words be matched exactly with our deeds, or maybe even to shut our mouth first, to let our deeds speak. And then when we're given an opportunity to say, why in the world are you doing this? Then we say, you know what? Because I've met someone that has totally transformed my life and helped me rethink everything I think about success, about money, about relationships. All that has been changed because of this person that I want to introduce you to and his name is Jesus. We should be known for our good deeds, right? And again, where does this need to happen? Do I need to start a hospital or some massive organ? No, I don't think so. But I think this can happen across the street to a neighbor that's sick and you bring over a meal to someone who needs their yard raked and can't do it because of an injury. These little things that I think God can use in big ways because they're done for his glory and God use me where I am right now to be the light of your truth and of your love to these people that you've placed me in the midst of. I may be working with them. I may be in the same class with them. I may be in the same neighborhood with them, but Lord, help me to, to demonstrate your love in practical ways. Talked about waterfront mission, just helping in that way. We're doing this thing, bags of hope, because somebody had this idea that, man, foster kids, they just feel so neglected and moving from house to house. We want to provide some hope, and I'm sure that has opened up many doors to share the gospel. Why in the world do you care for foster kids? Why bother your life with them? You don't even hardly know them. All the ways that we're called as believers, and there's a million different ways to do this, to let our deeds speak of the love of Christ. My daughter does 
big sister program. Big brother, big sister is a great way to involve yourself in the life of somebody else. Volunteer at Safe Harbor. Do something like that so that your profession is matched by what you're doing. And again, there's a million ways to do this. But I think our world is longing to see a Christianity that is actually lived out. That they're not just words. We live in so many words. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to get up and share more words. We, we've got words, words. You know, get on the internet, you search for anything, and it's like a million seven hundred thousand hits. You know, it's like, do we need more? But we need transformation of lives and good deeds lived out in the midst of this world so that other people say, wow, this person is actually not living solely for themselves. They actually care for somebody else and it's costing them in terms of a sacrifice of time or resources or energy or inconvenience and they're actually doing it. I, don't, I have no idea why they're doing that. I would never do that. Peter says, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that's in you. They were asking, why in the world are you doing this? What hope do you have? They saw such a difference in these believers' lives. I was like, huh, that just, what? What's going on? And so Jesus, I think he recognizes that our temptation when we are faced with pushback from the culture is either to, okay, we're just gonna water down this Jesus, make him really comfortable and palatable to our particular culture, or we're gonna run, 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 run away and live in our own Christian little bubble. And Jesus says, that's, that's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to be both distinct, to be salty, but also to be engaged in this world. And I think depending on where you are, you face probably one of those two temptations when you know that you're gonna get pushback in our world. We either run away and isolate to our safe place where everybody's gonna agree with us and we're not ever gonna get any pushback. And we say, it's just too hard to live like Jesus wants me to live in the midst of this world. I'm constantly having to avoid collisions, be super careful with how I phrase, all that kind of stuff. It's just too hard, so we're just gonna go with the flow. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's not saying become that. This is what you are. This is what I've designed you to be. So how are we doing at living out who we actually are? in the midst of this world. And this is convicting to me as well as I live this out. Because I don't like to have people not like me. But I realize, you know, now I'm in this weird position of being a pastor where, you know, it gets weird right away. Right after that question of what do you do? It's like, oh, my pastor's like, oh, sorry about my language. And they begin apologizing about all this stuff. And, you know, for you, it's usually you've got to raise the flag at some point in time saying, yeah, I'm aligned with Jesus. I think he's really significant, important, and I love him with all I've got. That comes later on down the road. But still when that comes, often it's like, man, I'm going to back off a little bit. And nobody likes to feel that, right? So are we being compromised? Am I compromising in any way? Or am I cloistering myself away from the world? Are we being assimilated just to go with the flow in the culture? Or am I isolating from the culture? That's not easy. And I think that's why Jesus, before he gets into his 
ethical teachings that come later in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you guys, you have to face this reality. It's going to get difficult. You're going to get pushed back. And I know you're going to be tempted. And one of the ways you're going to be tempted is just to water down Jesus, live on the down low, don't ever raise the Jesus flag and just go through life because it's a whole lot easier. Another way you're going to be tempted is to run away and cloister yourself and not have any impact in this world. But I've called you to be salt and light and you can't disengage because I didn't disengage. And it wasn't always fun for me and it's not always going to be fun for you. But guess what? You're my child and you will always be my child. Your identity is fixed with me. I love you and I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. So even if your friends and family forsake you, I will never do that. And we're not going to be able to do this unless our identity is deeply rooted in Jesus Christ. To know, you know what, even if I have to stand alone here, Jesus, even if I get pushed back. And persecution we talked about last week, it's not just being put in prison and tortured. It's being excluded, being unfriended, right? Being canceled. It's being reviled. It's being mocked. It's having all sorts of false things said about you. Man, you're a hater. You're bigoted. I can't believe how much hatred you have in your heart. It's like, I haven't said anything yet, but that's what I am. And Jesus says, be salt and be light. I'm going to close with Ephesians 5.8. This is what Paul says to the believers there. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. How often the Bible does that. This is what you are. Therefore begin to walk out the reality of who you are. You are salt and light. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He is the light in you. So begin to walk that out in this world. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a challenging word to us, especially those of us who want to be liked, who want to have friends, who don't want to be offensive or don't want to be pigeonholed or labeled as something that we're not. Yet, Lord, it seems like you recognize that sometimes that's unavoidable even if we are doing everything according to your truth. So, Lord, help us. Help us to be salty. Help us to shine your light through loving deeds done, not for our glory, but for your glory and your honor. Or this is going to look different for each one of us. We're in different places. We have different resources and abilities and talents, Lord, but help us to do it. Help us to recognize that you are the one that will give us the strength to follow through. And all the things we talk about, Lord, we do not have the wherewithal to do this in our own strength. So once again, we ask that you would fill us by your Spirit, with your power, to live as salt and to live as light, the things that we are in this world that definitely needs both of those. And it's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. <laughs>